On this show, we talked to lots of guys who've had near-death experiences. Cops, military guys, guys who've been shot, guys who have thought that they were going to die. But we've never had anybody on the show who died. Today's guest is the one person I've ever been able to talk to who can tell me what it's like to die. And then, what it's like to come back. And then, what it's like to come back and find value in your suffering. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Squadron, the podcast devoted to optimizing and creating a healthy and fulfilling life for first responders all around the world. I'm your host, Garrett Tesla. I'm an active duty patrol sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California. And on this show, it's my goal to talk to experts in a variety of fields to find those force multipliers that I can apply to my own life that can make me stronger, healthier, faster, fitter, uh, more mindful, more calm. That's a big one these days, more calm. Any of those things that I can do to make myself better uh, through the lens of trying to function as a cop, in my case, and in as many of your cases, or as a, another first responder, EMS or fire. And uh, I want to share that information with you here. Now, before we get to the interview, I want to remind you you can get more information on this episode, and you'll want to for this one, including show notes, a link to our guest's TED Talk by going to thesquadroom.net. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, of course, and you should be following me on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, at the squad room that's there uh my little my my address all right so our guest today uh his name is josh Mons. josh uh was a 2005 graduate of west point he's got the most insane story you will ever hear i'm, I'm willing to put money on that right now um josh was uh, commissioned as an infantry officer and in 2007 he was uh shot and killed and that's not a typo josh was shot and killed in 2007 by a sniper's bullet in Baghdad. The amazing part about Josh's story, of course, because he's on the show, uh, spoiler alert, he comes back to life. He literally came back to life. He was he was flatlined for 15 minutes, and I don't want to give away any more of it before we get to the story, but the point is is that he has complete cognitive recognition and complete functioning. Uh, he, he, he didn't lose any of his faculties, and he remembers everything about that event, everything, up to his last breath, and he describes it here, what it was like, knowing he was taking his last breath. Now, that's the kind of thing that's going to screw with your mind at some point if uh, if you're not careful. And Josh was careful, and he thought he was doing well. And he, the Army thought he was doing fantastically well and, in fact, sent him out on a publicity tour. He was their poster boy for resilience. But inside, Josh was starting to collapse. And it took a long time for him to realize this. And something he said during the interview that I just connected with and I think that a lot of people will understand is, you know, he, he realized that he was tactically at his best when he was the most emotionally detached. And he, Josh, Josh came back to his, his unit after four or five months, after five months, and eventually promoted to captain and then major. And he, he retired from the army as a major. So he was in it to win it. And, but it took a long time for him to realize that he had some healing to do after that event. And so we talk about that today. We talk about the idea of moral injury and moral wounds, which are different and something I just learned about because of Josh. It's different than PTSD. It's a really unique idea. So give a listen. Uh, Josh is the, is the author of a new book, The Beauty of a Darker Soul. 
Uh, it'll be out soon, and we will make sure that you know when it is. But you can check him out at darkersouls.com. I'll give all this in the show notes and, of course, at the end of the episode, too. But for now, let's listen to Josh Mons, of, uh, the founder of Darker Souls. Josh Mons, welcome to the Squadroom. Josh, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much, Garrett. It's great to be here. I got to uh, introduce to you through our mutual friend, Greg Amundsen, uh, who we were talking about just a little bit before we began, uh, before we hit record. And um, he, he, he's someone who's inspired you, too. He's obviously a big ins- inspiration to me. You called him uh, just a minute ago. You called him your mentor, too. He is definitely a mentor to me. So I knew that we were going to have a good conversation just based on that. And then I saw your backstory. And uh, I saw your TED talk and then thought, this is stuff that has to get out to uh, the audience, the first responders, the law enforcement officers that listen to this show. Before we get to why, I think it would be good to start with you and your history growing up and what brought you into your military service. Can you can you run us through that? Sure. Um, so I, I actually grew up in a, in a family of police. Uh, my my stepfather was uh, a former infantry officer in the National Guard uh, and then got out of the military and, and spent 25 years as a, a detective uh, or closed his career as a detective in, in Pennsylvania and still does some work with the attorney general's office today. Um, had multiple other family members who were who were in uh, police work and, and the military. What was interesting is it was actually my my stepfather who steered me away from law enforcement. Uh, believe it or not, he, he um, and it was it was for some pretty deep reasons. You know, he understood the emotional implications of of uh, that career field. And uh, you know, one one thing he said to me that I really stuck with me was that you know many young officers will get into this line of work really believing they're going to have a huge impact and 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 be able to drive change rapidly w- within their communities and you know he, he was he always found himself being stifled by a, a very complex and bureaucratic legal system by putting hardened criminals behind bars and seeing them back out on the streets on a technicality in a few months uh, a few months later uh, but but more importantly, it was it was really the day in day out uh, presence of cumulative traumatic experiences. You know that, that don't necessarily have much to do with firefights, right? But but have much more to do with constantly seeing domestic violence and rape victims and assaults. So so it you know it's it's the it's the constant presence of uh, you know domestic violence and and assaults and and rape victims and and you know dealing with the day in day out grind of of being in this line of work uh, has a very profound effect on our emotional state over time. Um, but nonetheless, he he kind of planted the seeds for me to go to West Point uh, when I was a pretty young kid and and I was laser focused on that from the day I set foot in high school. Uh, and, you know, was, was fortunate enough to get in there, uh, graduated. And then uh, before long, I was I was uh, in the Middle East leading a an infantry platoon in uh, in Baghdad. So what was the, so I find it interesting, you know, because I think for us in law, law enforcement, we see the military and we we often and sometimes mistakenly assume that it is worse in the military, you know, in terms of the things that you see. But. Why was law enforcement something that concerned your your stepdad and you and those things that you see, but the military stuff wasn't wasn't a concern? Because you you went in in to West Point in uh, well, you graduated in two thousand five, right? So you were this was That's a wartime correct. West Point appointment that you were going into. 
Correct. We, we were actually part of, I was the class of 2005, which was uh, considered to be the class of 9-11. Uh, and 9-11 happened our freshman year. So uh, we, we were knowingly going into war, right? And, and that, you know, my stepfather's perspective might have been a little bit different um, had he known that. But it, it was, the point of the matter is that, that you know, you alluded that the perception being there that police uh, somehow think the military service is, is more difficult or, or, or vice versa. And, and I, I really believe that in many ways, you know, there, there's a lot of direct comparisons between the two for sure. And there, there's also a lot of significant differences. And I really believe that, that police in many ways uh, have a much harder challenge ahead of them. You know, in the military, for for example, you know, we do very intensive deployments, but they're also relatively short term. You know, they're conducted over the, the period of, of six months to a year and a half. And, and, and certainly you cycle back, you, you, you go through a, a pretty extensive reset period, you train up for the next one and you maybe do it again. Uh, and you continue that pace throughout your career. Law enforcement professionals, on the other hand, uh, don't get a break. One of the most difficult challenges uh, that's often unseen or, or, or not understood in, in both careers, right, in, in all of the warrior professions, is our, our ability to suppress emotion. And in, whether you're in a combat environment or whether you're on the, on the, the streets uh, patrolling in the United States, we, the warrior professions almost demand that we have to learn to suppress emotion when we are on the job, right? And not only to survive in those situations, but to thrive within them. And I, I even personally, I, I, I recognize that I was probably at my tactical best when I was the most emotionally withdrawn. The difference is that when you're deployed, you're, you're distant from your family. You're, you're distant from your friends. There's almost not even an expectation that you're going to call every night, right? Which allows you to kind of remain in this emotionally numb state and, and not have to constantly fluctuate in and out of it. Police officers, every single day, they have to uh, come home and try to turn that emotional switch back on and, and, and really go through this emotional roller coaster, which is extremely difficult to, to learn how to do. Uh, and that's why many of the challenges that, that all of us face really start to manifest in relationships. And that's, you know, re relationships aren't necessarily the cause, but are often the catalyst uh, for a lot of the deeper emotional challenges that we're facing. So you graduated from West Point and you're assigned, what, what, what was your, I know the military term, MOS, but what did you, what were you doing uh, in the military, in the army? So, so I was, I was commissioned as an infantry officer and I was, I was leading an infantry platoon in Baghdad, uh, basically during the, the infamous surge timeframe, uh, roughly 2006 to 2008. And the interesting part about that specific deployment is, is it was, it was really grounded in counterinsurgency, um, which, you know, in that environment, it's, it's, it's kind of considered by many to be the graduate level of warfare because of its complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to maintain the ability to be lethal in the snap of a finger if you need to. Um, so, so that tactical expertise always has to be the forefront of your mind, but it tends to be the least of it 
you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of those operations are grounded in demonstrating empathy, understanding the culture, and building relationships, right? Um, probably much more similar in many ways to police work. Uh, in, in fact, during that time frame, we, we actually had uh, pol some police officers from the United States who were contracted to uh, embed themselves on the basis of the military units to act as advisors because there were so many direct parallels. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. We've had uh, several Green Berets on in the past, and one is a Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann who's written a book on mm -hmm. changing your culture by and using the counterinsurgency tactics of the Green Berets, and I see such a direct correlation to how policing works and should work um, in, 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 a, in a perfect world and why we can take a lot from that. Um, so you're in Baghdad, you're leading this, this, this group, and it must have been quite the transition from um, well, basically a college environment, but I mean West Point, obviously, to leading a group of people and uh, leading a group of men into these situations. What was that transition like for you? Was there, uh, how, how steep was the learning curve coming out of West Point and then all of a sudden finding yourself in the middle of Baghdad uh, in a counterinsurgency program? <laughs> well, the, the learning curve, it's almost like every phase of your military career, is, it, it, the learning curve is always steep. Um, and, and certainly in Baghdad, it was much steeper. Um, but even backing up to the first day that I met my platoon, you know, I was a fresh graduate of West Point and I was coming in to lead a platoon of very experienced non-commissioned officers who were who just some of the most incredible people that I've, I've ever encountered. And to come into that environment and, and, and you know, kind of establish yourself as, as a leader, um, it, it can be very, very intimidating. And it's, it's fortunately, I had good mentors uh, growing up. You know, one of, one of my strongest mentors was a retired Special Forces Sergeant Major, uh, who actually on the night of my graduation from West Point, uh, gave me some key advice, and he, he said, Josh, when you first get to your platoon, the first thing to say is, I know nothing. And, and, and obviously, he was he's kind of having me take that with a grain of salt, but the, the, the point is, uh, humility is a critical aspect of, of any leader. And, uh, you know, I, I went in with the, the mindset of learning from my men, uh, certainly not trying to use rank or anything like that to, to move, you know, the people who do that, they, they fall flat on their faces. So, uh, it's, it's a, a very mutual respect as you, as you build and establish that trust, uh, that's really enacted, uh, the moment you set foot in, in Baghdad for real. So, you know, very chaotic environment, uh, trying to learn the scope of, of what was happening over there, the dynamics between the different little sectors and, and the different subpopulations. Uh, but the, the, the root of the operation, um, regardless of the violence that was surrounding us, the root of the operation was establishing relationships with the local people. Now, walk me through and tell me about April 21st of 2007. Sure. Um, so I was actually, uh, I, I spoke Arabic, and I actually majored in Arabic at the academy, So, which was, you know, I... I Language ended up being the most powerful weapon I could have carried uh, in, in that environment. And I, I was, because of that, I was, my unit was paired with uh, one of the Iraqi police groups in, in the area. And they were 
on the verge of being ineffective. They, they were heavily infiltrated by insurgents. They were under-resourced and, and just not what we would think in, in the United States of, of a police force. But it was very important for us to try to repair that uh, relationship and, and, and make them the face of the operations. Uh, so that particular day, I, I had uh, built up a pretty good level of trust with the police chief, and he actually agreed to go on a humanitarian mission with us and, and send some of his his men, which was uh, one of the first times they've uh, agreed to do that. Uh, and we we did that humanitarian drop. It, it went great. It, it was a really good mission, but about halfway through, we got diverted to another part of the sector. And uh, an another unit was engaged by a rocket-propelled grenade, and, and we were basically going over there to support and, and further investigate what happened. And as we were over there, I, I, we noticed a, a suspicious vehicle driving around that very slowly that looked like it, it might have been recording us uh, to use it as propaganda. So we, we stopped that person, and as myself and my senior non-commissioned officer uh, were questioning him, we were engaged by an enemy sniper. And the, the bullet, uh, very high caliber bullet, uh, first severed his aorta and then ricocheted into my upper right thigh and severed my femoral artery. So that was basically the, the, the point of impact. Um, you know, long story short, and, and we can dive as deep into this as, as, as you'd like, but, um, you know, for the next roughly 20 or 30 minutes, uh, the evacuation process continued. And um, I, I was evacuated to a, what we call a level two care facility, uh, which just has basic life-saving equipment, but fortunately had just a, an incredible trauma unit. Uh, an incredible medic who was with us on the ground from the moment we got shot, who, who just didn't didn't skip a beat. But but despite the best efforts of that medical team, I could I could literally feel myself starting to die. And um, you know when you're when you're dying of a catastrophic injury like this, you're 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 essentially suffocating. And you know the, because the blood there's there's no blood to deliver oxygen to the the vital organs. And the, the body will actually attempt to pull blood to the chest cavity in order to protect those vital organs. And I could actually feel that happening while I was on the operating table. Um, the, the, the blood started to creep out from my extremities. And, and as all the blood left, they kind of cramped up and became numb. And then that blood creeping sensation moved to my stomach and, and, and it became numb. And it, when that feeling hit my stomach, it, it's the first point uh, throughout the entire process that I realized the injury was getting out of control. You know, I, I, I didn't experience any physical pain uh, during this event, but, but what I did experience was more of an anaerobic pain and uh, in, in that I was doing like a hardcore CrossFit workout and just couldn't stop for some reason. Um, and that, that, that feeling continued into my chest. And, and when it hit my chest, I consciously knew that that was it. Uh, took my last breath and and died. And when you say died, you mean died. Explain that for everybody. <laughs> so I, I woke up uh, about two days later in the green zone to learn that I had flatlined for 15 minutes straight. Um, and, and for comparison, you know the the, the most 
uh, doctors and surgeons within the, the, the medical standard is, is roughly about six or seven minutes before most physicians will, will call it on a patient. And, and the reason for that is after the six or seven minute mark, I mean, that's really the point where catastrophic brain damage sets in. So the medical team really expected uh, that if I woke up at all, uh, I, I would wake up with, with catastrophic brain damage. And what was bizarre is I, I woke up without a trace of it. Uh, so so th this, this medical team uh, just really stopped at no end uh, to, to pull off what was almost could be considered a miracle uh, in, in working on a dead guy for 15 minutes straight with no pulse, no heartbeat. Uh, and, and somehow they got a faint pulse back, rushed me to the green zone where I underwent an emergency surgery, a vascular surgery. Um, the, the, the surgeon there gave me almost 30 units of blood <laughs> to, to save my life. You know, they were, they were pulling soldiers off of the base because there was a blood shortage at the time. And, and uh, so, so they'd, they'd pull any soldier who had a blood type match, take blood straight out of them and put it straight into my body. Um, it, 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 obviously, the situation was that urgent. And, um, you know, every step of that medical evacuation process from, from the moment I was shot to that initial medic on the ground to the the flight surgeon on the way back to the to the medical treatment I received at Walter Reed was just just phenomenal, um, and and that really led me to to be able to return to Baghdad in only about five months after that injury to finish finish that deployment. And I want to get your return here in a second, but I want to touch on two things too that I thought that you've said elsewhere. And correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but um, when you were first shot what the first thing you did was attend to your staff sergeant who had taken the bullet first and you were working first aid on him when when the medics came to you and the other thing was that you have near perfect recollection of the entire event up until the time you flatlined is that right that's correct um there was a a physiological progression of uh, this this process of of dying that I experienced, and I, I, again, you know, like you highlighted the the <laughs> the fact that I'm alive, the fact that I don't have brain damage, but then you add on top of that 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 the the, the perfect recollection that I retained from this experience, uh, which is is really the reason why I still carry this message forward today. I, I consider it a responsibility, and it's. There's so many facets of it that have helped people in ways that I never could have imagined. Um, but the, the progression was really interesting. At, at first, during the initial gunshot wound, um, and I, at first I, I didn't know that I was shot. I, I just felt that something was, was kind of wrong or off. But I can point directly to Dave Grossman's work on this. Uh, and, and I know he's been a former guest on your show um, you know, on killing was actually on the required reading list at West Point, And I'm so glad it was because what I initially experienced was verbatim what he outlined in his book. You know, it was slow motion time, fast motion time, auditory distortion, and that I could only hear the muted sound of the sniper rifle and my own voice calling for a medic. You know, I, I, I could, I could watch and, and with crystal light clarity as Marlon slowly fell to the ground. And as soon as his body hit the ground, that, that sense of slow motion transitioned to a sense of fast motion time as, as I drug him out of the way to safety and, and, and started to perform aid on him to the best I could. Um, 
so so it was it was really bizarre. And, and um, when my medic arrived a few seconds later, you know, th this is um, an important point to highlight. You know, th this was a 19 year old soldier who uh, suddenly realized he had two catastrophic injuries to deal with at the same time, and he couldn't save both of us. And at 19 years old, he had to make a conscious choice of who he was going to save and who he was going to let die. You know, and, and, you know from a, a medical standpoint, from a triage standpoint, he, he absolutely made the right call in riding with me because I had a slightly better chance of survival than Marlon did. But those are the types of situations that can uh, cause moral wounds like guilt to manifest over the rest of our lives if they're not resolved, right? And, um, you know, fortunately, the, the, the next phase of the, the medical evacuation process, you know, my, my men loaded me into the back of a vehicle. And fortunately, that, that trauma team was only about 10 minutes away. Um, and as I was in the back of that vehicle, I, I became extremely nauseous. Uh, I no, no physical pain, but it was this this fight to just try to stay conscious. And I and I made that my only objective what was to try to stay conscious until I got to that trauma unit. Uh, but I was so weak that I couldn't even unbuckle the the plastic strap on my Kevlar helmet. Um, so so it 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 just uh, felt as if I had given blood ten times over, um, and, and was just holding on by a thread. And then when we got into the actual aid station um, and they were they were working on me, that, that's when the kind of that that blood creeping uh, sensation came in. Mm -hmm. You know, the the probably the most profound part of this whole thing is um, I I did not have an out of body experience, uh, and not that I can recall at least. You know, when I when I flatlined, I consciously knew that I was taking my last breath. I, I, re, I remember very vividly, but I, it, it kind of just, it, it faded to black. I, I didn't have a situation where I felt I was floating over my body or, or saw a white light or anything like that. What I did experience though, I think was even more powerful. And, and, and I say that because I know I was still conscious for this. Uh, and it, it couldn't have been more than the last second or two, but the only way that I can describe that feeling is one of absolute and complete submission to something much greater than ourselves. And, and through that submission was the most overwhelming sense of peace that I've ever experienced. It, 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 was, it was like every good, every bad, every positive, every negative, every doubt, every hope just, just vanished. And, 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 and as if the, the spirit becomes part of everything and nothing at, at the same time, you know, I, I woke up, you know, waking up two days later and, and then kind of going back on the deployment and everything. It, it, it wouldn't take me long to figure out that the experience of dying uh, would pale in comparison to the 10 year emotional struggle that I'd go through as I sought to find meaning in the second life. Uh, and, and, and that's where the heart of the matter really lies is, is the emotional journey afterwards, which, which isn't necessarily what it seems. Well, yeah, I want to get into that. So you mentioned that you returned to your unit five months later. There, there, I don't think there'd be anybody out there in the world that would fault you for, you know, taking the medical retirement or why, why go back? So it took me uh, almost a decade to give you the answer that I'm about to give you. 
Um, but I will, uh, to, which is which is the the absolute truth uh, behind this that I, I didn't previously understand uh, until I did all the, the the really deep work to to get at the root cause of it. But you know, for for years, I, I would say that I, I went back for two reasons. Uh, one of those was obviously for my men. You know, they were still in a in a very difficult fight. Uh, less than a month later, after I got hit, our our platoon sergeant was hit by a, a roadside bomb, and he was evacuated out of theater. So the men needed leadership, and and more importantly, they needed a morale boost. Uh, and that was one of the primary driving factors was was not being there for them. You know, and, and you might think like this, you know, and this is very, very common among the warrior professions, right? It's it, the, the bond that you share with the people you serve with is is one of the most powerful things that, that can drive us to do things that are nearly impossible. And uh, that was certainly a major factor. But it, it was like on the plane ride back, it, it wasn't like after I got wounded, it, it wasn't like every minute was a minute closer to home. It, it was a minute farther away from the men. You know, and that that guilt really hung with me uh, through the duration of my healing process. The other reason is I, I felt like I I needed to prove to myself that I could get back on the horse, so to speak, and continue to perform my job as an infantry officer. Um, and there there is truth to both of those statements, but. Over the years, I you know, and especially going through the deep work of of writing this book over the last two years, I had to ask myself those really hard questions. You know, what was it that really was driving me to do this thing that, that frankly, I wasn't ready to do that, that probably wasn't healthy to do. Um, there were, there were some very negative implications of that, that, that really revolved around my family. You know, I mean, just, just remember that my mother received a phone call from the department of defense casualty office um, you know, when I was shot that said, ma'am, your, your son's been critically wounded. He, he's not going to make it through the night. Get on a plane to Germany now if you want to see, you know, have a chance of seeing him before he passes away. It, it, and, and less than four and a half months after that, I was volunteering to get back on a plane. I was pulling stuff out of my medical records. I was pulling staples out of my leg with a Gerber multi-tool, you know, and I was, I was almost in this, almost like this weird psychotic state where, where there was absolutely nothing, no matter how extreme, that was going to stop me from getting back. And, and that, that wasn't like a, a bravado statement. It was, I was being driven by something very, very powerful. And I, and I, I thought it was my men. I thought it was, you know, this, this uh, desire to prove this to myself. But, but really what I uncovered is I, I was being driven by guilt, you know, not necessarily in the form of survivor's guilt and that Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper died and I did not. Right, but more so, in in the sense that, um, you know, I, I was evacuated to Walter Reed Army Medical Center, which is where the most severely wounded soldiers are are housed and and receive medical treatment coming back from combat. And clinically, the care that I received at Walter Reed was just fantastic. Um, nowhere else I'd rather be. Uh, but emotionally, it can be a very difficult place to be. You are surrounded by some of the most severe, devastating injuries you can fathom. Um, and, and I was one of the only ones who was expected to make a full recovery. Despite how bad my injury was, it, it was, it was really a, a, a muscular wound. It was a flesh wound. I even kept my leg, you know, and, and 
the image that I'll never forget is I, I, I came around a corner and, and I remember seeing this beautiful young 20 something year old girl pushing around her new double amputee fiance in a wheelchair. And the, the power of that image just shook me. And uh, I, I, I realize now that I, I had a, a profound guilt in my ability to heal when others couldn't, coupled with the guilt of not being with my men downrange that, that, that really prompted me to do this uh, almost impossible thing. Uh, it, it wasn't some drive from the experience of getting shot and dying. And, and as I talk about the complexities of trauma and the, 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 the tenant that trauma isn't always what it seems, you know, doing the forensics uh, throughout my life and the true detective work to, to really uncover what the root cause of that, that was driving me to do, not just going back to Baghdad, but driving myself in the ground for, for years and years and come to, to sacrifice my health, sacrifice relationships, uh, you know, uh, just never, never stop on this unending quest. And, and it, it just it got to a point where it absolutely broke me and, and, and led to a series of multiple suicidal spirals and, and depression and anxiety and, and, and everything else. You know, so, so it was um, guilt is powerful. And, and it can drive us to do things that uh, aren't necessarily healthy. So um, <clears throat> what was the first point in, in your process of, you know, you, you returned to Baghdad, you're with your men. Do you remember or can you tell me about the first time you realized that you were falling apart? <laughs> there's there's. So initially, there, there were some indicators that I can identify in retrospect. Mm -hmm. um, these are not things that I recognized uh, in the moment, uh, which is an important distinction. Uh, and that's, that really holds true for, for really from that point for the next probably eight or nine years afterwards. Um, there was an indication right away. Like when I went back out on the first patrol, um, I, I was, I was actually just, it, it was hard to even consider it a patrol. It, it was literally, we were just supposed to go to this other base and, and link up with this other team. So it wasn't like a true combat mission or, or anything like that. It was literally just driving down the street a couple miles. But the trick is that, you know, our biggest threat was roadside bombs and, and this, this particular street was one of the worst. So there's still obviously a threat there as there always was. And, and I remember when the when the person driving that vehicle kind of caught up on the radio that we're leaving the base, I, I, I just completely shut down. Like it, it was, it was almost like a silent panic attack in, in a way um, where it, I, and I just remember being thankful that I wasn't leading that particular patrol uh, because if I was, I, I, I would have been ineffective. Um, so that was an indication, but I, but I thought that was kind of just first patrol back jitters or, you know, whatever it might've been. I ended up, you know, leveraging the support of the people around me and, and that, that sense kind of faded. But what I didn't realize was happening and, and, and wouldn't for years to come was, was really the presence of this dark emotional void, this emotional absence that, um, what was, I, I couldn't recognize it at the time, yet it would it would impact everything 
that would happen in the years to come from from relationships to work to my uh, health and, and, and everything in between. And through this time, you continued, I mean, you, you were in for a little bit longer, right? And you uh, promoted up to major, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, the... <laughs> You know, I was uh, after finishing the the second part of that tour, uh, which which was fine. I, I was pulled up to be a general's aide a couple years later, and this was around 2009. And the unique part about that year is is this is when the Department of Defense was really starting to get serious about overcoming the stigma surrounding the behavioral health field. And, uh, you know, at the time there was, there was a pretty significant spike in uh, depression and post-traumatic stress and divorce rates, especially coming back from the, the surge time frame. And they were, they were struggling to overcome the stigma. And uh, I, I was asked to basically go on a national speaking circuit and leverage this, this uh, experience of this near-death experience to kind of capture people's attention and drive home the real message of, of reducing or eliminating stigma. And, and I did that. And, um, you know, within the span of that first year alone, there was well over 100 speaking engagements. Um, and, and before long, I, I, I kind of was in the limelight as a testament of what resilience is supposed to look like. You know, it, it was, uh, you know, what post-traumatic growth is supposed to look like. Yet internally, I was collapsing. And I, I again, I, I wasn't deliberately trying to suppress anything. I, I, I wasn't trying to avoid anything. I, I was I was interacting with some of the best clinical providers in the field. You know, I was speaking at behavioral health conferences. I was on Oprah and CNN and Fox and all this all this stuff. You know, helping all these other people. Yet I failed to recognize the symptoms within myself. And it, 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 it didn't take long before I found myself in the, in the, in the first major suicidal spiral, uh, standing in a corner of a, a hotel room and not having a clue who I was anymore, uh, not having a clue where this came from. Uh, and it, it, it really dawned on me that, the, the, you know, at, the, at that point, what I was feeling, uh, and I, I think this applies to so many people that I work with today, like, what we tend to feel, especially when you're operating at the moral and spiritual level, when you're looking at these experiences through the lens of guilt and shame and powerlessness and betrayal, when, 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 you're, when you're looking at it through that lens, that's the point where the, where the truth emerges. Yet many of us have trouble finding the language to describe uh, what those feelings are. And, and our natural instinct is to kind of just suppress it or move forward or, 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 or think that we'll, we'll, we'll overcome it in some other way. You know, I, I didn't have uh, kind of the, the what might be more common uh, symptoms of, of nightmares and suicidal or, or excuse me, nightmares and anxiety and, and, you know, feeling jumpy at loud noises or not being able to be around crowds. I, I had none of that. Uh, yet the one thing that was never discussed uh, even on the circuit that I was on, e even amongst the presence of some of the best clinicians uh, that, I, that I've ever encountered, was this concept of spiritual and moral wounds. Um, and I was very fortunate. Um, I, I, in that moment, I somehow found the strength to reach out to the one person who I knew had been there before me. And, you know, in, in, in moments like that, 
we sometimes have to place blind trust and faith in those who surround us and at least give ourselves the opportunity to generate hope, you know, let them prove us wrong. And, and when I called my friend, Jeff Hall, um, who had, had been through a similar experience as I, he, he was much farther along in the healing process as, as I was, you know, he resonated with me in a way that I, I didn't think was possible. You know, I, I adamantly believed that that phone call was going to be worthless, that um, there was no possible way that he or anyone else could understand the depths of what I was experiencing. But literally in the span of a couple seconds, he proved me wrong. And, and you know, I, to, to, to access that, I really had to put blind faith and trust in him. And he connected me the, the very next morning. He, he connected me with uh, one of the top uh, clinical social workers in the Department of Defense. Uh, again, very fortunate. I happened to be a, in Washington, D.C. at the time, and that's where she was based. And she dropped everything on her calendar and talked to me for four hours straight. And it was, it was her, it was she that uh, was the first person to expose me to the concept of moral wounds to the impacts of emotional withdrawal. And, and, and that's truly where the, the, certainly not the start and end of it, that was just the initial crack of the door to what would become a true healing process. But it would get a lot worse before it would get better. <laughs> so, Now, you, you talk about moral wounds and your work is connected with this idea of moral injury. Can you define that a little bit? And um, maybe if you're able to, parse the difference between that and what people probably just assume is just post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. You know, the, the, I, I think labels can really sometimes get in our way. Um, sure. No doubt. And, and you know, what, what truly matters here is, uh, this, this is for you, right? This is, it's a, it's a very internal and inward focused journey that, that has to be undertaken in order to overcome this. And not only to overcome it, but to derive meaning within the suffering. And and once you derive meaning within the suffering, that's that's what ultimately, even though you might not believe it now or or or, or can't see or feel this now, that's what ultimately adds so much strength uh, to to our lives in the end. It makes us stronger than the experience itself. So I, as I look at um, a good way to answer that would be to start with how I define trauma. I, and and a, a traumatic experience is something that a, a situation or an event that fundamentally alters the way you believe the world should work, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and when when an experience rocks us to the core, when it alters or, or compromises um, our moral or spiritual beliefs, the things that we may have latched onto for our entire lives, and suddenly those things are flipped upside down, flipped on their on their heads. It can really invalidate, uh, or feel like it can invalidate the core of who we are. And th th those those types of things uh, tend to be so complex and deep, and even subtle, that uh, they, they can go on to plague us for years and years and years until they're uncovered. Yet, yet oftentimes it is the root cause and, and, the, and, the, and the catalyst of a true healing process is to uncover uh, the depth of what those things are. You know, and, and for me, I'll, I'll kind of revisit the example I gave you um, earlier when I was speaking that trauma isn't always what it seems. 
you know, my healing process was delayed for a decade. And I'm not blaming anybody for this, just, just to preface it with that. It's just how it how life is. My healing process was delayed for almost a decade because there was such a overt focus on the isolated experience of getting shot, dying, coming back to life. Right. And I can understand why many people might view that as the holy grail of trauma, right? And because it looks big and flashy, but it, you know, when you compare it to the definition that I just gave. You know, that, that um, it w was that a situation that fundamentally altered the way I believe the world should work? Uh, no. You know, I, I went in uh, when I was trained for situations like that. You know, you, you don't necessarily think they're going to happen to you, but you certainly know it's a possibility. You know you have the, the possibility of losing people that you serve with and lead. Um, and there, there wasn't really, if we look at it through the lens of, of moral wounds, like shame and powerlessness and betrayal, those elements weren't there, you know? So, but the, the focus on it, right. It, 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 coupled with the fact that I did not understand the depth, uh, as many people don't, 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 under, don't have the language or don't understand the depth of, of the moral impact that these wounds can have. Uh, is is what really just allowed this to fester and fester and fester and progressively get worse and worse and worse over time. You know, uncovering sometimes what are the most microscopic details of an experience can can like for example, identifying the subtle difference between is this survivor's guilt or is this a guilt in my ability to heal when others couldn't. You know two very different things in terms of the resolution of the trauma. You know, it, it, this, this type of thing applies to, to, to really just about any traumatic experience. When, when we view them through the lens of shame and guilt, right, okay. that's often where the catalyst of the answer lies, you know, it, it, to, to generate the true healing process. So to, to kind of tie this too to then to law enforcement, I think there's a lot of similarities there because – or not, I mean, similarities, there's a lot of consistencies there, I guess is what I mean in right, terms right. of, um, you know, in law enforcement, an example, I, when I was trying to do my research on understanding the difference of what a moral injury is, is these, you know, like something we experience all the time of being surrounded by victims and legitimate victims, you know, um, right. kids who have been sexually abused, who had no uh, ability to defend themselves and, um, you know, accident victims and all these people who just through through circumstance and life um and then we end up getting the call and going there and, and and dealing with it and then we walk away go to another call we dress out for the day we go home to our our family but if we aren't keyed into what these things are and how we they affect us they i think that's how i see law enforcement and your experience relating so well that, you know, it, it festers and, it, and it's going to happen and it happens again, right? It happens the next, right. it might even happen the next shift. It might happen two times in a shift. It, it, you know, it's going to, over the course of a 20 or 30 year career, these these affronts to our sense of justice. And uh, one thing the military and law enforcement have in common is a very strong sense of right and wrong, right? Right. Uh, of, of good and evil. Um, that is that line. I mean, the, the, the sheepdog and the wolf, right? To go back to Colonel Grossman. And so when... When we are unable to to right that moral wrong, um, I, I, that's how I see some, so much of this potentially affecting us. Right. Yep. 
I, I, you're defining powerlessness right now, you know, and it's so insightful um, because there are so many parallels. And the the interesting thing to me, and and we see this a lot, is trauma is is again. I, I go back to it again. Trauma is very cumulative. It's complex, um, and it's it's not always what it seems. You know, a, a, a lot of people tend to just naturally compare themselves with others when it comes to traumatic experiences. But I assure you that shame does not. I assure you that guilt does not. And, you know, we, we tend to look at these kind of, uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to degrade it in any way because every experience is so unique. And, and, you know, if somebody else went through what I did, it, it might have been a slightly different experience. And, and so I'm not negating anything but saying this, but we tend to look at these these profound events as being uh, what defines trauma, like getting shot or the firefight or, or or dying, right? And and because that stigma is there surrounding that, because that misunderstanding is there, that 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 is is what trauma is. Trauma lies day in day out to everything that you're experiencing on the streets every day. It, it, like you just like you just spoke to, you know, it, it, it's it's that that fundamental powerlessness of not being able to right that wrong or 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 help that person when you're dedicated to a career of selflessness, you know, to to to, to be powerless over situations like that, and and to be be powerless when you're in a career where you're sworn to protect and defend those people. Is is something that can cause an invalidation of your beliefs in the way the world should work, right? It might not be as flashy as you know talking about a firefight, but that doesn't matter when it comes to your own emotional health. You know the 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 thing that's going to truly drive your healing process. I I, I re- really believe it is viewing our experiences objectively as possible through the lens uh, of moral wounds and, and and being willing to recognize that that those day in day in day in day out situations are highly traumatic especially over the course of a career you know and, and you, you don't necessarily know what's going to you know another common thing we see quite a bit is you know suddenly someone who you know whether the police military whatever they will be triggered by an event that is seemingly insignificant and the, the person will wonder why is this triggering me so much why did this cause this reaction is th- there must be something broken there must be something wrong with me because i've been through much worse than this you know and the the point here is that the cumulative effect of trauma has very real weight to it you know it, it, it's as if you're building a house on uh, on a foundation that's cracked and, and the, the more that you go on and you continue to build on that, that cracked foundation, that shaky foundation, you never necessarily know what type of event is going to cause that, that house to collapse at, at some point. Um, so it, the, the bottom line here is it, it doesn't mean, regardless of what the experience is that triggers you, there's probably much more behind it than the event you're facing right now, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it, it does not mean there's anything wrong with you. There, there's a reason that we act the way that we do and, and why we feel the emotions we're experiencing. You know, I think one of the things too, that exacerbates it for both again, military and law enforcement, but, it's, but something for law enforcement. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with 
Dr. Kevin Gilmartin's work. Um, he's a police psychologist, but the overinvestment in in the identity of being an officer, and it's it's easy to do for for the military too. But if you slowly through the course of your career um, be, begin to uh, let parts of you go that are not cop related, you know the 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 artist or the mountain biker or the you know, the things you do outside of work that I you identified with those things start to go away they, they get put to the wayside as work and promotions and kids and family life start to take over and eventually officers often not always but often end up with the only identity that they have is of of being a cop right right <laughs> so and they go through life with this identity and that is who they are. It's not a part of who they are. It's not what they do when they go to work, but it is who they are. Um, and dangerously, I see a lot of people actively pursue that idea, which I think is dangerous. Right. You know? <laughs> and they, they preach in the Academy and everywhere else, you know, um, keep your friends outside law enforcement, keep your activities and your hobbies that have nothing to do with law enforcement. And I think those are key things. Right. And I, <laughs> and I see that it, those of those of us, and I'll count myself in this, but those people who either intentionally or unintentionally woke up one day and realized their only identity left is as a law enforcement officer, that makes that makes that foundation you talked about with that mm. crack, that makes that crack wide and deep when you don't have anything else to fall back on. You don't have a, a spiritual health or you don't have that identity as the, the coach or the, the barbecue cook for the neighborhood or, you know, those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. That's, that's excellent insight right there. It, it, it's almost a great transition point to kind of the the aspects of building resistance to this kind of trauma, right? It, it is, you know, our, our egos, our, our cognitive minds, they, they crave identity. They crave grasping at something and identifying with something. Yet anything that we find ourselves identifying with in life, whether it's positive or negative, is a cause for suffering at some point. You know, even if it's a highly positive experience, if we latch onto that too much, it can cause anxiety because it, we have the capacity to lose it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and similarly, you know, if if we're if we're looking at something very negative, we can we can perpetuate in that environment as well, right? So th there's there's a couple of things that. Um, I really think are foundational to to both building resilience uh, prior to traumatic experiences and 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 you know returning to baseline and growing from them afterwards and and those are really grounded in uh, good strong wellness practices right that can include things like breath work which I believe is foundationally the most important breath work, yoga, meditation, and, and, and having a consistent practice of that in your life. And also uh, the power of human connection, the power that we share with each other. Certainly some of those connections in your life are going to be members of your profession. But I encourage anyone to be willing to expand that horizon into a more diverse population where you can. Um, very interestingly, many of the people who resonated most closely with me throughout my life did not come from a military background. You know, they were investment bankers and attorneys. They were entrepreneurs, you know, and, and doctors and social workers. You know, they, they came from every walk of life and, and, and every type of trauma. But the, the point is that trauma doesn't discriminate. 
You know, I, I know people in the transgender community who have resonated with me on a deeper level than just about anyone in my life. I mean, it, it, look at their experiences through the lens of shame and guilt and powerlessness, right? And it's just, it's prevalent. And I, and I, I find that uh, w when people have the ability and the courage to be vulnerable and, and, and to, to really operate at that level, those types of moral wounds are, are also the very thing that binds us together at the core of humanity. You know, it, if, if you know shame, then you already know the deepest parts of who I am. Uh, we, we might have got there in a different way, but the, the, the uh, symptoms that manifest from those experiences can be very similar. So, so the, the, the sense of human connection, although it's very underutilized in our society, it, it can be one of the most powerful facets to, to, um, to, to helping us overcome some of the worst experiences and, and most challenging experiences of our life. So the, your title of your book is The Beauty of Darker Souls, and I'll get to the subtitle here in a minute, but I wanted to ask, because you touched on it just there, um, I, I love the title, but <laughs> but um, what describe your what's your definition of, of a dark soul, and what do you mean by the beauty in that? <laughs> you know, um, I, I kind of, um, I can go back to really great authors like Viktor Frankl for, for this, um, you know, where, where we know from him and what he taught is that suffering is inherent to life. Um, you know, he's, he's, he quotes in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And dis despite the, um, I, I say this knowing that, that, that I have lived through and with the darkest moments that, that I, 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 I can't even fully describe. And I, I know what that feels like. But as you go through the journey of, of healing and, and overcoming that experience, I'm thankful for every single one of those today. And, and I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. Because all, all of those experiences have broadened my emotional bandwidth. They, they have given me the capacity to empathize with others on a much deeper level and, and ultimately allowed me to, to help people in, in, a, in a pretty significant way. That is where I find the greatest meaning in life, and it's where I find beauty within the darkness. So leveraging the perspectives from your own experiences. Um, there, it can, it can take a, you know, I, and I understand that, that it, it can take an enormously long time in order to derive the meaning from them. But, but when that meaning is derived, it is a quest worth seeking. It is a path worth following, um, despite how painful it might be, because the strength that you derive from it afterwards is, is irreplaceable. Now, the subtitle then is Overcoming Trauma Through the Power of Human Connection. So for someone who's been knocked down like you were, how do you, and, and you said too, and I thought this was interesting, at the beginning you said tactically, you were tactically at your best when you were the most emotionally detached. And again, I think that is an exact uh, correlation to law enforcement. And like you, like we touched on at the beginning, we, we, we don't come home from a deployment, right? We, we are to and from work on a constant 24-hour cycle, and it's easy to become tactically proficient when you are emotionally detached. But how do you, do you go about reestablishing those human connections? Yep. 
that probably most, the most difficult question that I've ever been asked is <laughs> how do you feel <laughs> is, is how do you feel? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I was, um, I was actually shadowing a therapeutic retreat or a, a therapeutic session with another therapist. And, um, I, I was, I was participating in that group as if I were a member and, and it came to me and I, I you know, we, we had to basically do a check-in, say your name, say why you're here. And then, and then say the core emotion of how you're feeling. And I, uh, they got to me and this was only about less than two years ago. And, and um, when they got to me, I literally froze. And I, I realized at that moment that I was incapable of accessing my own emotional state, that, that I had been on this automatic suppression mode for nearly a decade and wasn't even aware of it, that my emotions were controlling me. I, I was not in control of them. And, and, and that was really a, a, a major event in my life. And part of it was, uh, you know, I, I was, I was ready to hear it. I, I had kind of been on this journey for a long time. And I think that event kind of helped it really sink in for the first time, um, w- w- which then led to much more profound things. And, and this is where you look at, you know, mentors like Greg Amundsen and, and Mark Devine and Dan Brule, you know, international breathwork expert. Who, who all of these uh, folks, you know, uh, those who are, 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 are very successful and, and, and really have the, the warrior spirit lined in, they, they all follow a very deliberate, disciplined practice. Um, almost all utilize breathwork as the gateway to accessing what we consider or, or what some of us call the witness or, or what I like to call the overwatch mind. In, in which you, you, there, there's a place, a, 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 a refuge, if you will, within all of us that's accessible by all of us where you can take a step back and, and, and go into a state of overwatch mind or, or, or the witness. Or some call it the spirit. Some call it God, right, where you can observe your emotional and cognitive reactions without making judgment upon them. And, and in that pause, in that, even if it's just for a brief moment, that is where wisdom is derived. That is where we can start to see uh, meaning in a lot of these things. The gateway to it, the gateway is, is breath work. And, and, and that is one thing that can really help set the conditions to, to get you to that place and to start to overcome it. So what does your practice look like specifically then? Um, is it do you do just breath work like combat breathing or box breathing or uh, do you have a meditation practice? Yeah, you know I actually follow um, I actually follow Greg Amundsen's fire breather fitness sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, his his practice I think is so great. It it starts in the morning um, with with intentional words and intentional thoughts, right? Thoughts and, and words that you're aware of. Uh, from the moment you wake up, it, it starts with at least one conscious breath, right? One deliberate breath, and, and then goes into a, a very intensive uh, and physically challenging uh, workout uh, training session that at the end of that incorporates both yoga and meditation. Um, what I also do is at the end of that, after I go through that that practice, which usually takes an hour, hour and a half, um, I, I also delve into, uh, I, I kind of close that by, by diving into some sort of spiritual, uh, reading, uh, it, you know, sometimes that might be Buddhist, uh, teaching. Sometimes that might be scripture. Sometimes it, it you know, I, I, 
pull from a, a lot of different resources uh, to do that, but there's there's always a, a kind of a spiritual quest um, to, to deepen my understanding of that. Um, it, it it takes discipline. I, I, I'm not saying that every day that I I, I do this is it's perfect, but I, I'm most importantly I am aware of when it's not perfect, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, and, and and having that awareness, having that awareness is is probably the most important thing you can do to, to fundamentally change your life. Um, and similarly, right. You know, we, we discussed the power of connection, Greg Amundsen, Mark Devine, Dan Brule, many other people had such a, a fundamental impact in my life. Um, and I'm, I'm forever grateful for their presence and, and, and that of many, many others along the way. You know, I, I, um, I operate, I, I kind of intentionally stay in the trenches in, in the work that I do. You know, I, I, I understand how distant sometimes like maybe practicing breath work or wellness exercises can seem to somebody who's in a deep state of depression, right? Or, 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 or has severe unresolved trauma or they're going through a massive challenge with their relationship. I, I know what those dark voids can do and, and how far they can pull us away from the things that, that really keep us healthy. Um, but if we can give people the language uh, through conversations like this to, to better understand the spiritual moral burdens that we are carrying, to derive meaning from them, it will return us to a baseline, oftentimes a new baseline, which is totally okay, a heightened baseline that we can then continue to build our practice off of and, and continue to strengthen because of it. Josh, I think that's a fantastic spot to end. I want to be respectful of your time. I could keep talking for another hour, but I know you've got stuff to do. Uh, where can people find out about you and then also uh, your new book, The Beauty of Darker Souls? Yeah, so The the Beauty of a Darker Soul is coming out. Uh, you know, we're, we're just wrapping up the pre-publication review at the Pentagon. Um, so I'm expecting that we will be able to publish in August or September. Uh, but if you want to stay tuned with that and, and a lot of other uh, content to come on trauma, just hop on to Darker Souls, darkersouls.com, and uh, you know, just drop your email in, and, and uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch that way. And, uh, of course, I'll uh, post the show notes, uh, post all that in the show notes, too, so people can go to thesquadroom.net and find out uh, that link if they can't write it down off the top of their head at the moment. Um, are you on Twitter, Instagram, anything like that yet? Sure am. I've got a, a Darker Souls Facebook page as well. There's we're, we're we're getting ready to press the go button on a lot of things. Uh, I, I I can't identify a specific publishing date until it clears the Department of Defense review, which is just a formality. But um, you know we should be announcing that here any day now. So yeah, feel free to. I, I use Facebook frequently. Um, and then there's a darker souls page on there as well. All right. So yeah, we'll put all those links into, uh, the show notes for this episode so people can go there and find it. And then of course we'll make sure that everybody knows when that book is ready and it's out and available for purchase that, that it's, uh, that it's out there. We'll, we'll make everybody uh, aware of that. Josh, thanks so much for your time. Um, I see so much consistency between your experience and, and the experience of some people in law enforcement. I see a lot of this myself, people I know, and I think, uh, hearing, such a story as yours where the fact that you died and flatlined for 15 minutes, that wasn't the hard part. You know, I (laughs) think, I think that there's a message in there for people that they can maybe take a step back in their own experiences and understand that just the day to day, that might be it. 
And if that's enough for someone to take that de that deep box breath and then go ask for help, man, it's 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 been it's well worth the time. So thank you for being here. Well, thanks for offering the venue to do this and, and for all the work that you're doing as well. Thank you, Josh. Good talking to you. You too. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Squad Room. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation with Josh, and I'd have a hard time believing you didn't, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Uh, Josh uh, was instantly one of my favorite guests to ever have on this show. And uh, I think we connected just as uh, guys around the same age. We have mutual friends. And um, Josh just speaks with such authenticity and with such obvious caring. And uh, just, just love that about it. I, I, I emailed him right after the episode and thanked him and just how much he inspired me to keep, keep moving forward myself. So if you heard something a loved one needs to hear about this, of course, please tell them. You can go to thesquadroom.net. You can email this episode directly to somebody from our website. You can also text the squadroom to 44222. That's the squadroom, all one word. Text that to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list directly from your phone. And again, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the squadroom or on Facebook. This job's tough. It's tougher than anything that can be put in a few words uh, we tried here in the last hour and we couldn't even, we couldn't even cover everything. So if you want to start a conversation, ask a question, reach me at Garrett, two R's, two T's, Garrett at the squadroom.net. Finally, this episode is brought to you by audible.com with over 180,000 titles in their inventory. Audible has hundreds of audiobooks that apply to us. Hopefully Josh's book will be in that uh, soon once it's released. If it's a slow shift or a long commute, audiobooks are a great way to continue your education uh, to get a free 30-day trial and free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash the squad room to sign up. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.